We began our study two weeks ago, and uh, the Bible tells us when Paul was writing to Timothy, he told Timothy, he said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It was God-breathed. We don't have a Bible that just contains God's thoughts, but we actually have the words that God wants us to have in His Scripture. And all of it was God-breathed. It was inspired by God. And uh, it was profitable. It says that all of it is profitable to us for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect. It doesn't mean without sin. It just means more mature, to be fully equipped spiritually. The man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And uh, we uh, actually are, are uh, started uh, a couple weeks ago on Wednesday nights a study in, um, in prophecy. We're beginning to deal with uh, some prophecy, end-time events on Wednesday nights. And, and we've studied the purpose of that. Why do we do this? Uh, what is our purpose? And if all Scripture is given to us and is profitable to us, then that means even prophecy is profitable to us. If all Scripture is inspired, if all of it is uh, profitable to us and contains uh, or is God's Word to us, then we must be sure that we have a pure word. Uh, we handed out a, uh, a chart uh, last week or a week ago. Uh, and if you weren't here for us to teach through this, that chart may or may not make a lot of sense to you. So what I would encourage you to do, I'm not going to go back through the whole thing, is it would take half of Sunday school to teach it again. But uh, two weeks ago, I think, is when we covered this. If not, it was last week. But on our Facebook page here at the church, we have our services recorded. I would encourage you to find that service and, and uh, go through this. But basically, there are two uh, lines uh, of Scripture that have been translated. One of them uh, was done by a group of people who said our doctrine is the most important thing. And uh, we want to make sure that our doctrine is right. And so in order to make sure that our doctrine is right, we need to come to the Bible and find out what it says. Because we want to make sure our doctrine is right, we want to make sure that our Bible is right. And you have another group of people out here who say, well, we believe a certain thing, and rather than coming to the Bible to find out what they should believe, they believe something first, and then they take the Bible and they change it, or rewrite it, or edit it, or retranslate it to fit what their beliefs are. By doing that, they have corrupted Scripture. And you'll see the two lines given on the chart there of doctrinal purity and where doctrinal error branches off around. Uh, it was actually in existence prior to Origen. Origen was the one that really kind of took off with it and changed a lot of things. So we talked a little bit about that, the two lines of Scripture, why we uh, believe that the book that we hold in our hands uh, which is the King James Version of Scripture, is not only the inspired Word of God, but is also preserved without error. Psalm 119, if you're there, please look with me. And uh, let's look down to verse number 89. Psalm 119, verse number 89. The Bible writes this, and, and David, uh, the psalmist writes this in verse 89, Forever, O Lord. Now, that's, that's a long time. You know how long forever is? <laughs> that's a long, long time. Uh, there's no end to it, is there? Forever, O Lord, thy word is what? Settled. It does not change. And we made the comment last week, you know, there people say, say, well, it doesn't really matter what version of Scripture you use. They're all the same. Can I encourage you in this? And one of the first things I ever learned as a young person 
is that things that are different are not the same. They just are not. And if a book is different than my King James Bible, it's not the same as my King James Bible. It changes things. It changes the doctrine that this book teaches. And if I am wanting to have right doctrine, then I better make sure that I have a right book to get my doctrine from. We don't get doctrine from the pastor. I'll be real frank with you. I know your pastor, and if you're depending on the doctrine to come from him, you are sadly mistaken. Not going not gonna to be a good thing. Uh, we want to get our doctrine from God's Word. That's where it comes from. I was talking to a fellow just the other day, yesterday I think it was, uh, that uh, has been coming to our church here recently. And uh, he said, you know, one of the things I appreciate is uh, you, we always come back to Scripture and look at what Scripture says. Because our doctrine comes from this book. As Baptists, we believe that our soul, and I like to use this word, our only, and I would even go so far as to say this, our final authority for faith and practice is this book. It's the beginning of it. It's the middle of it. It's the end of it. It is all that we look to. We don't look to the Bible and the New York Times bestseller from some religious writer. We don't look to the Bible and some megachurch pastor. For our doctrine, we look to the Bible alone. And if it contradicts what a pastor is preaching, and you have to choose between what does what do I believe? Do I believe the pastor or do I believe the Bible? I don't care if it's this pastor. You better believe the Bible. It is the first priority, and it is because of this that we need to make sure we have a pure Word of God. We talked a little bit last week about the canonicity of Scripture. How did we get these sixty-six particular books? In, uh, in our Bible. And so we spent some time on that uh, last week. I'm not going to reteach that, but you have a handout there, and it has a lot of um, the rules. It gives five rules that they followed to be able to include a book in the Scriptures. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about that. Uh, there were four, four main languages that the Bible was penned in originally. Uh, the first one was Hebrew. A lot of your Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Uh, fairly good portion of it was written in Aramaic. Uh, and uh, then you have just a small little portion of it written in Chaldean. Um, and then you have in the New Testament, almost all of it predominantly was written in uh, Greek. And so uh, the old Greek, Koine Greek. And so you have mainly four languages that they were written in. I will say this, that God seemed to always choose the predominant language of the time to be able to inspire these writers to write in. And uh, again, following the principle that we just read, Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God has promised to make his word settled uh, forever. Uh, we know that the Bible teaches very clearly that he has preserved it for every generation. Every generation will have not only a portion of, but a complete and preserved word of God. So, uh, why the King James Bible? Uh, we talked about the two lines of manuscripts and, and how uh, one line took off and made uh, over 30,000 changes uh, in it in order to fit uh, the doctrine. Origen was a person who uh, believed the Bible was a big allegory and there were things to derive from it. He did not believe in the literal uh, interpretation of Scripture. He did not believe in the virgin birth. He did not believe in the deity of Christ. If you don't believe in the deity of Christ, I don't know where salvation comes from. Because otherwise there is no sacrifice for sin. And uh, he changed all these things in his manuscripts, and that's where the line of other scriptures come from. Primarily, you have 
uh, a large consensus of texts that were uh, written and scribed. And uh, I didn't give you this last week, but a large portion of those that were uh, scribed that we still have copies of today that uh, all seem to be in agreement with each other, over 5,000 of these manuscripts, were written in the area of Antioch. Antioch in Scripture was a hotbed for Christianity. This is where uh, Christians were very revived, very on fire for God and doing a great work. Uh, there are five other manuscripts that all of our other versions of Scripture come from. Not 5,000, but five. These five disagree with the 5,000. Not only do they disagree with the 5,000, they disagree with each other. And these come from Alexandria, Egypt, the hotbed of philosophy and humanism. Uh, this is where Origen was in, in some of these things. Uh, there are five basic manuscripts that those come from. Some of the most uh, well-known ones that we know of, uh, one of the manuscripts was called the Sinaiticus because it was found at the base of Mount Sinai in a uh, monastery, and it was found in a fire pit. It was such a uh, bad translation or bad scribing of the Scriptures that they used it for kindling to start their fires. And uh, they found it partially burned in a fire pit, and uh, but they... Some, for some reason, still want to take that as an authority. The other one was found in the Vatican of the Roman Catholic Church, and they uh, used those two primarily. A couple fellows by the name of Westcott and Hort come along, and they compiled uh, these other uh, manuscripts, these five that disagree with themselves, and they also disagree with the 5,000 manuscripts that came from the Antioch area. And uh, they say, okay, these are our authority. These are more accurate. And so they begin to make translations off of those. Every translation, every translation of Scripture other than the King James Bible, and they claim the New King James Bible, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. All of the other versions of Scripture come from a corrupted line of manuscripts. You have a corrupted line of manuscripts, and you translate from those, and I encourage you in this, you will have a corrupt translation. If you have a pure line of manuscripts and you translate from those, you have the opportunity to have a pure translation. So we're going to talk a little bit about that here in just a little bit. They claim that the new King James uh, comes from this same line. The problem is they took the old King James and they sat down with it primarily and tried to modernize the language. They said, well, it's too difficult to understand. Well, you know, I, I've, I understand there are some words we don't use in here commonly anymore. But when I was a kid and I didn't know what something meant and I asked my mom and dad, you know what they would tell me? <laughs> you had mom and dads like I did, didn't you? Go look it up. It's not hard to understand. They have this book. It's called a dictionary. <laughs> it helps us to understand what the word means. You say, well, they don't have the old archaic words in them. Get you, and it's prevalent. It's one of the best dictionaries out there. It was written at the time that the English language was almost at its pinnacle. Uh, get you a Webster's 1828 dictionary. You will find not only will most words of your King James Bible be in there, but oftentimes when they give the definition, they will post the verse of Scripture that it is in reference to to show the context and the usage of that word. And so for someone to say, well, I can't understand Scripture, just it, all they're telling me when they say that is I'm lazy. They're not saying they can't understand it. They're saying I don't want to do the work to understand it. Can I tell you something as important as God's Word? 
certainly warrants our work and our labor in it. We ought to study it. We ought to know these things. We ought to labor in it. If I was studying to go into some kind of a career, I would spend thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. And I would go to college and I would uh, work, work nights and, <coughs> and study and work hard to be able to learn about a particular trade that's going to last me only for my lifetime. But when it comes to understanding something that is eternal, we seem to pour little time or no time at all into it, nor any effort. I'll be real frank with you. A young person with any kind of reading capability in second, third grade level, maybe fourth grade level, can read John 3.16 and know what it means. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is not hard to understand. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is not hard to understand. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is not hard to understand. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is not hard to understand. We use it as an excuse to not read the Bible is what we do, because we don't like what it says about us. Anybody enjoy being told you're a sinner? (laughs) I don't. We don't like what the Bible has to say about us because it tells us we're sinful men. In fact, the book of James talks about that. It shows us what manner of men we are. And there's not a, none of us like to be told where we're wrong. We just don't. Especially men, I guess, we're that way. We don't like to be told we're wrong. So usually when we say, I can't understand Scripture, what we're saying is, I don't want to take the effort to understand it. I don't want to take the time to understand it. I don't, I'm not interested enough in what it has to say because it doesn't say anything good about me. It says plenty good about God, though, doesn't it? And it tells us how that we, even though we are sinners, can become righteous in the sight of God. Not by our merit, but by what Christ has done for us. So this book is an important book. Having the right version of Scripture, before we get into the overview of the Old Testament is very important that we understand why we use the King James Bible. The, the New King James Version, they came out and they, they changed the language in it. And I come back to this thing. Things that are different are not the same. When you change a word, it changes the meaning of it. And it changes doctrine. Subtly sometimes, but it still changes it. And it causes our doctrine to begin to go down a path that it does not need to go down. A path of inaccuracy, a path, a path of corruption. If you have your uh, piece of paper, and I've got some extras back there if you don't have them. Uh, maybe Brother Wayne will hand you some. If you don't have one of these, raise your hand where it talks about the program for the translation on one side and the rules to be followed on the other side. Maybe Brother Wayne, if Brother Wayne doesn't mind handing those out. We're going to start on the side that says the program of translation. I want us to understand... Never in the history of man has there been such an effort humanly to have a precise and a fully accurate uh, translation of Scripture. The scribes that wrote the manuscripts that we get our English translation from, our King James translation from, were so meticulous that they literally would have the, uh, the individual letters dictated. They wouldn't even say the word. They would give it letter by letter. And the person reading the, the, the book would give the letter, and they would write one letter. 
And then they would give the next letter, and they would write the next letter. And if there was a mistake made on the page, they didn't just run a line through it or cross it out and keep going. They threw the page away, got a blank sheet of paper out, and started all over again. This is how precise and how careful the scribes were in the manuscripts that we get our King James Bible from. It was not unusual for it to take an entire day from sunup until sundown for a professional scribe, someone who that was his career to write things, it was not unusual for it to take an entire day to write one page of Scripture. This is how meticulous and how careful they were with the pages of Scripture. The line that we get our King James Bible from, this is what the, the scribes did. Now, when it came time for there to be an English translation, we talked a little bit about the two really good translations that were there. Uh, early on in the, in the first century church, we had the old Latin uh, that was compiled. They put the entire Bible into Latin. Uh, the other version that was written in Aramaic, and it was known as the Syriac Bible. And those two uh, were written for two different languages, obviously. And both of those were considered to be accurate and complete. Uh, and then, of course, they were scribed down from there. When it came time for the King James translation to take place, there were some precautions that were taken humanly, and we're going to talk a little bit about these, and we're going to talk about the rules they followed for translation. Because I want us to understand that never in the history of man has there been this kind of effort. There's never even been in the history of mankind anything anywhere close to this kind of effort being made to have an accurate and a, and a correct translation. Um, that laid aside for a moment. Not only do we look at the fact that it would be almost impossible, taking the care that these fellows took to have an inaccurate translation of Scripture, it would almost be impossible even from a human standpoint. Then you have to add into that the aid that the Holy Spirit gave in preserving to the English-speaking people a Word of God that is pure and without error. Let's look, if you will, at the program. This is, what, this is what they set up to be able to translate into our English uh, what we consider to be our King James translation. There were about 54 men that were appointed to the work. Only 47 of them actually did work on the translation. There were several of them that were uh, to be consulted if there was an issue. There were some that were kind of on standby. Uh, so 47 of these men uh, actually worked on the translation. Uh, of them, the translators uh, to the readers wrote these words, In this confidence and with this devotion did they assemble together, not too many, lest one should trouble another, and yet many, lest many things happily might escape them. This is what they were considering to do. They divided into six different companies. There were two companies at each location, and they put them throughout uh, different areas because they did not want them to be influenced geographically. Excuse me for a moment. It's getting a little warm up here. So they were divided into six companies. Two of them were located each at three locations. One of them was in uh, Westminster. One of them was in Cambridge. And again, all of these places are well known for their scholar, uh, scholarly uh, uh, societies and, and colleges that they have there. And then, of course, Oxford. So three different locations, Westminster, Cambridge, and Oxford. Uh, each company was given a portion of Scripture to translate. So each of these uh, six companies were given a small portion to translate. Initially, every member of the company uh, would make an individual translation. 
So you'd sit at your desk all day. You'd translate however many verses of Scripture. And uh, then there were uh, evidently at least seven members in each company, so each passage would be translated a minimum of seven times. So seven men all translating the exact same Scripture. When they were done with that, each company would come together, all seven of them. They would go over the work together and come up with a joint translation. In other words, they would say, okay, where do you differ from me? And all seven of them had to be in agreement. And if they could not reach a unanimous agreement between the seven of them, they threw it out and went back and retranslated it individually again and came back to the table again. They would continue to work until they had a a unanimous uh, agreement that this was an accurate translation from these seven men. The translations then were passed along to the other five companies made up of seven men apiece in those companies. And they were to be reviewed and corrected by them. And if there were any corrections to be made, they sent it back to the original company to redo again and to make those corrections. The translations were passed along to those other five companies. Now, verse uh, number 9, For the final review of the entire translation, a general committee, was made up of two men from each of the original companies. In addition, other scholars not on the formal committees were encouraged to give comments and suggestions throughout the translation process. By using this method, each passage, notice this, each passage was closely gone over at least 14 times. Every verse of Scripture was gone over at least 14 times by men that were scholarly and educated in the languages, especially biblical languages. That's a pretty amazing thing, considering most of the translation work of other versions that we see on the market today were done by one or two, maybe three at best. And they go through it once, and they do a proofreading, and then they make their proofreading corrections, but they don't continue to go back and retranslate. Nor do they all translate all of the Scripture. They usually give this section to this man, this section to this man, this section to this man. And so this is an amazing amount of effort. It's all funded by the king. And uh, uh, no, no expense was spared here. Let's look at the translators themselves. We're not going to look at all of them, but let's look at some of the characters, some of the credentials that these men had. At least 66 men were directly involved in the translation of the King James Bible. Most were translators while few others were project overseers, revisers, and editors. Some served in several roles. In other words, sometimes they were translators and overseers, or they were in charge of their company or their group. Who were these men, and what were their backgrounds? Well, they were a diverse group. While some were born in large cities and towns, most were from small villages that were scattered throughout England. Several were uh, the children of university graduates. Most were not. They were sons of mariners, farmers, school teachers. Uh, Cordwainers, uh, Fletchers, uh, ministers, brewers, uh, tailors, and aristocrats. All of the translators were university graduates. Oxford and Cambridge claimed nearly equal number of translators as alumni, but most of the translators spent a significant portion of their career associated with their colleges and universities as fellows involved in teaching and administering. So these weren't just graduates of these places. These were some of the professors, the higher-ups in these places of learning. When the translation commenced in 1604 and 1605, the majority of the translators, 22 of them, were in their 40s. 
16 men were in their 30s, 15 in their 50s, 3 in their 60s, and 3 in their 20s. So, again, very few of these were novices or what we consider young men. Most of them were seasoned. They all had familiarity with ancient languages of Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and often many more. Some of them could fluently read, write, speak, and understand uh, as many as 11 different archaic and biblical languages. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I've studied a couple of different languages. Um, I've studied Koine Greek uh, for two years. I can take a Koine Greek New Testament and read it, and I could probably give you the gist, although even at this time I don't read it enough anymore that I could even probably do that. I'm talking about men that would be able to read, speak, and write fluently and have full understanding of what they were reading in as many as 11 different archaic languages, biblical languages. Uh, so tremendous scholar, uh, scholar men here. They came on the historical scene at a time when the knowledge of early biblical texts and languages were exploding. Such a flowering of interest and expertise was unique. Um, this one particular historian states, states this, The population from which scholars can now be drawn is much larger than in the 17th century, but it would be difficult now to bring together a group of more than 50 scholars with the range of languages and knowledges of other disciplines that characterize the King James translators. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? With all the education that we have today, I don't know that you could find even 50 in the day that we live that would have the qualifications that these men had uh, that were used as the translators of the King James Version. For such a diverse group, they worked together in harmony uh, during generally contentious times. There were no tell-all books published after the fact. Uh, Miles Smith remarked in his preface to the King James uh, of the King James Bible, the translators were greater in other men's eyes than in their own. They sought truth, notice this, they sought truth rather than their own praise. <clears throat> this is evidenced, and I'll tell you this, <clears throat> if, if you go over to the back of that page where it says rules to be followed, um, let's see here, look in verse number... Uh, or not verse number, the uh, rule number 14. Um, let me make sure that's the one I want to use. Okay, yeah. These translations uh, were to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible. Tyndale's, Matthew's, Cloverdale's, Whitchurch, and Geneva. So, and earlier on, and I, I didn't get the right one here. Uh, give me just a second. I had it marked on another sheet, and I don't have that sheet with me. The, there it is. Okay. Look in verse, uh, uh, rule number one. The ordinary Bible read in the church commonly called the Bishop's Bible was to be followed and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. This is an important thing to me. The king, when he sat out and he said, listen, translators, here's the rules I want you to follow, and he, with his advisors... He told him, he said, I want you to take the Bishop's Bible, which was the commonly used English Bible at the time. He said, I want you to take that one, and I want you to change it as little as possible. Don't, you know, it's, it's your main source of reference. If, in, in uh, rule number 14, he says, if you can't, if, if it just doesn't agree with the Bishop's Bible, then use Tyndale's, Matthew's, Cloverdale's, Whitchurch's, or Geneva. You'll find out that over uh, over 80 uh, percent looked down at the just under 15 
the little next paragraph there, you'll find that uh, about 80% of the Bible that was used was not the bishop's Bible, but was which one? It was, it was Tyndale's Bible. So, so look at this for a minute. And, and there's been some criticism by some, some scholarly men in the day that we live now about some of this. They said, well, these translators, they were paid by the king. They were commissioned by the king. The king was in disagreement with some things about some scripture, and that's why he wanted a new version. And so they just followed what the king wanted. No, they didn't. The king wanted them to follow the bishop's Bible. When they went to their translation work, they were so bent on it being right that they ignored, and this is something you did not do in that day, they ignored rule number one. And they said, in order to be accurate, we want to make sure that the translation is the most accurate it can possibly and humanly be. And they went against the king's decree and said, we're going to use Tyndale's more because it is more in agreement with accuracy than the bishop's Bible. So unless somebody throw out there, well, of course they translated it the way that King James wanted it translated you can look at the rules and tell they didn't follow that. These men were bent on having the highest degree of accuracy as humanly possible. You take all of this together and you think it would be almost impossible for them to make a mistake with the care that was given. It would be almost virtually impossible for them to make a mistake or error anywhere in the Scriptures with the care that was taken. Then you add into it that God has promised to preserve His Word for every generation. You know what the, the number one language around the world today is that is spoken in every civilized country today and is the, is the language of trade today? I'm a pilot. I fly airplanes. You know what one of the requirements of being able to get my pilot's license was? Whether I fly here or internationally, I have to be able to read, write, and speak English. You fly into England, you have to speak English. But you fly into Russia, you have to speak English. I've flown into Haiti. We have to speak English in Haiti when we fly into those places. Why? Because it is the acceptable language of the world. God preserved from the 1600s on when the English language was becoming the world empire at the time and the world language. God preserved it in that language. Why? So every generation could have not only a portion of God's Word or part of God's Word, but they could have all of God's Word preserved without error in every generation. The 1800s come along, some men get together and they say, you know what, we want to improve, we want to change, we want to make it easier to understand, and really it wasn't about that at all. They wanted to make money. And so they copyrighted their works and sold them. And they corrupted our King James Version of Scripture. They got five corrupt texts and said, this is what we're going to translate from. They were not nearly as scholarly. And I will promise you this, they were certainly not aided by divine providence in their, in their translating work. Only, in my opinion, and after all the studying that I've done on why we hold to the King James Bible, only do I feel confident in saying that the 
translators, when I look at the life, the character, their religious beliefs, the things that they held to, they would go and they would seek for God's wisdom and the Holy Spirit's direction in their translation work. I've never seen a work like that that I've been thoroughly convinced was of God. And because it has changed so many things in this book, it has changed the teaching of it, I have to look at those versions and say they are corrupt versions. They teach things that are in error. If I'm going to stand up here as a pastor and I'm going to declare truth to you and say this is from God's Word, I better be confident that this is God's Word. If I am not, then I'm telling you man's opinion. I'm telling you what some uh, other translator thought might be the case. Instead of holding a Bible in my hand that I believe and have full assurance in, is not only inspired by God, but is preserved without error for the English-speaking people in the King James Version of Scripture. And uh, I would encourage you in that. Um, We will pick up in Genesis next week. I'll go ahead and give you... The very first note of next week's, all right? Genesis is the first book in the Bible. (laughs) And you have to come back next week to get more, all right? Very profound, wasn't it? Y'all writing that one down so you can remember it? All righty. I'm looking forward. I'm excited. In fact, I've already got a ton of my notes for Genesis. And... uh, we're probably going to end up taking two weeks on each, each book, I would imagine, or at least most books, uh, just because there's a wealth of information that I think is very important for us to learn as we study an overview, a high-level overview of some of these books, and see how they all tie together, how they all work as God's Word. And so looking forward to that. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. Father, help us as we... Uh, go through our day-to-day that you will guide and direct us with your Holy Spirit. And, Father, stir our hearts. May, may there be um, something that when we leave here today, we will say has been a great blessing and a benefit to us. Not because uh, a pastor has preached a great message or said certain things, but, Father, that your Word has been illuminated in our hearts. We've had an understanding of truth. And it has done its transforming work in us. Lord, those are the things that we desire. We long for Your Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. And so, Father, please allow there not to be any distraction, any quenching or grieving of the Holy Spirit as we look into Your Word in the next few hours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.